we need to at least be honest. All of us should be honest about what it is that we're talking about. Then we can debate whether or not it's okay or whether or not it's a part of healthcare. But we really all need to be on the same starting point. That that is the sole intent of an abortion. That's what we're talking about. Caring for Both, a curbside consult series by the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where medical professionals answer your questions about what it means to provide evidence-based, life-affirming health care to both pregnant women and their pre-born children. We know that every day in your practice and on your rotations, you face clinical situations that are challenging. We've all called a curbside consult when we need a quick second opinion on the best course of action for our patient. This podcast series is meant to serve as a curbside consult for you as you face ethically challenging patient care scenarios. Hear from experts on how they approach these situations and tips for how to think through them. We upload new episodes every Thursday. I'm your host for today, Miriam Diallo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christina Francis, AppLog CEO, whom you may have already heard hosting a couple of our previous episodes. Dr. Francis is a board-certified OBGYN with nearly two decades of experience. She currently works as an OBGYN hospitalist in Fort Wayne, Indiana. She is also an associate scholar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, a board member of Indiana Right to Life, and a physician member of the Abortion Pill Reversal Network. As a pro-life speaker, Dr. Francis offers her medical expertise, knowledge of bioethics, and pro-life reasoning both here in the U.S. and around the globe. She has written on issues surrounding women's health and abortion for publications including the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and USA Today. Now, Dr. Francis recently returned from an international conference in Arusha, Tanzania, where she gave a couple of presentations, one of which was an overview of pro-life apologetics, that is, how best to articulate a logic-based defense of life. We figured we would be remiss not to relay those insights to our listeners here, since as medical professionals working in an environment that's not necessarily agreeable to your position, you may be called upon to defend your views on abortion to your classmates or colleagues. What's more, being able to explain your position logically and respond to some of the most common objections against Against it may prove to be really encouraging for you as you practice according to these values. Additionally, for anyone listening who might not consider themselves pro-life, we hope you'll still listen in. Maybe you'll hear something that you haven't considered before. This is going to be the first of a two-part conversation, the second half of which we will upload next week. Dr. Francis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Miriam. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you've been on the show before as the host, uh, but could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, How did you get into obstetrics and gynecology and what has your career looked like so far? Absolutely. Well, it's really fun to be able to be on with you. We we work together a lot, but not necessarily in this capacity. So um, as you said, I've been in practice now for about 15 years. And when I started medical school, I actually didn't consider the the field of OBGYN. I had been planning to do uh, medical work overseas as as part of a, a missions hospital. And, uh, and so I was kind of thinking more, you know, family medicine or internal medicine, something like that. But what changed my mind and anyone out there who, who does obstetrics, this will probably resonate with them. What changed my mind was the first time I was part of a delivery, actually, and just started crying because I thought, 
thought it was the most beautiful thing, uh, which might sound weird to some people, but uh, but just getting to see uh, really the miracle that happens uh, in, in a delivery room. And so that got me started thinking about the field of obstetrics and um, then when I got into my third and fourth years, I realized that I really liked doing surgery. And so for me, OBGYN was just a really good combination of getting to do deliveries, getting to do surgery, getting to do primary care, kind of a little bit of everything and realized as well that it really was a good fit for the mission field as well, because, you know, in many developing countries, the the populations of people who, who need the most uh, healthcare and the most medical support are women and children. And so OBGYN was really a good fit for that. And so I started out my career right after residency in rural Kenya at a, at a about 110 bed mission hospital and spent a total of three years there uh, serving uh, the people, the Marquette people in Kenya. And it was really such a wonderful time, um, really learned a lot <laughs> more than, um, you know, in addition to what I had learned in my residency, I feel like it was kind of an extended residency because practicing medicine there was certainly looked a bit different than practicing medicine here. You had to be a little bit more resourceful, but um, spent a total of three years there and then um, moved back to the U.S. in 2014 and started practicing here in Indiana in 2014. And then in 2016, became an OBGYN hospitalist. And that's what I've done ever since. Wow. And your journey has certainly been extremely inspirational for both medical and non-medical people who get to watch you work at Applog. Uh, and you've certainly done a lot of work advocating for the preborn at Applog. But in your day-to-day -day medical practice, uh, how often do you get the opportunity to articulate your position on abortion? And what does that look like? Yeah, well, you know, certainly in my in my practice, you know, I think that my my position as a as a life affirming medical professional who desires the best for my patients, uh, my hope is that that's readily apparent every day in my practice. You know, as an OB hospitalist, I I take care of um, both high risk and low risk pregnancies, so women that are hospitalized for pregnancy complications, women that show up to the emergency room with. OB or GYN related emergencies, I take care of them and then normal labors as well. And so, you know, I have a lot of opportunities in my in my practice to interact with women who, uh, like I said, are facing pregnancy complications where, you know, maybe there might be some medical professionals out there that would that would recommend abortion to them or, you know, elective termination in those circumstances. Um, but I'm really able to talk to them about uh, the value of their lives, the value of their, their preborn child's lives. And also, you know, in situations where maybe a woman might be considering an abortion for an unexpected pregnancy where she's not really sure what to do. You know, one of the things I'm able to talk with her about is one, the supports that are available for her um, so that she doesn't feel like she has to make that decision, but also the potential harms that might be involved with, with an abortion decision. But I also get the opportunity to interact because I certainly, you know, certainly not everybody that I am in practice with is on the same page as me on the issue of abortion. And so I've been able to have some really, I think really good, productive conversations with my partners, with the nurses that I work with, again, some of whom agree with me on the issue of abortion and some of whom don't. Um, in fact, some have um, exactly the opposite opinion of abortion that I do. Um, but the good thing is my, my background in learning solid pro-life apologetics, which I know is what we're here to talk about today, has really enabled me to have respectful, open conversations with them, be able to listen to their position, 
but then also be able to clearly articulate my position that it's not simply a religious position that I hold, that it's that it's actually, again, based in logic, based in uh, my view of, of human value and human worth and human equality, and also my knowledge of the medical literature about abortion's impact on my patient. That's all really helpful, probably, for aspiring medical professionals to know what exactly it would look like to navigate as a pro-life physician, not only in so far as their position kind of seeps through in the way that they care for their patients, but also in the conversations that they have with their colleagues. So to jump into the actual apologetics, um, let's start off with a high-level summary of the pro-life position. Uh, What would you say is the elevator pitch argument that quickly captures what you believe on abortion? Yeah, well, I'm glad we're starting out with this because I think that so many people think that this is a really complicated conversation to have. And, and you know, I certainly wouldn't minimize that. It can become very complicated. But what I'm going to challenge everyone to do is to boil this conversation down ultimately to a three-sentence syllogism. So we may remember if we think back to, uh, you know, high school, maybe, maybe college, um, you know, logic classes. A syllogism just means that if A is true and B is true, then A A plus B have to be true. So um, so I'm going to just a three sentence syllogism that if people walk away and only remember one thing, I would encourage them to remember this. So the first sentence is that abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. The second is that it is wrong to kill an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. And really, this is the crux of the argument. And this is really where when you're having a conversation with someone about abortion, you know, there are a lot of kind of rabbit holes that we can go down um, when we start talking about this. And, And some of those rabbit holes can be very difficult to get out of. But really, this is the crux of the argument. This is what we need to focus on and keep the conversation focused on. Yeah, and that's pretty straightforward, actually. I would venture a guess and say that most people, pro-life or otherwise, wouldn't really have a problem with at least the second point about how it's wrong to kill an innocent human being. It's probably more the first point that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being that they might object to. So they might ask, what human being? You know, abortion doesn't kill any human beings. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, well, you're, you're hitting really the, the nail on the head. So, you know, I said that that whole syllogism is the crux of the argument, but I would actually argue that the the one point, if we had to make one point that was where this whole argument around abortion focuses on, it's what are the preborn? What are preborn beings? Uh, you know, are they human? Are they not human? Are they a person? Are they not a person? This is really, like I said, the crux of the argument. And and there's a there's an apologist named Greg Kokel who uh, said this, and I think it encapsulates it so well. Why is it so important that we determine what are the preborn? Because, and again, this is his quote, if the preborn are not human, then no justification for elective abortion is necessary. However, if they are human, then no justification for elective abortion is adequate. And so I think that's why it's really important that you know, again, there's lots of things we can talk about. We can talk about women's rights. We can talk about reproductive justice, reproductive freedom, all of these things. But these things distract from really the crucial point is understanding what is that preborn being. And, you know, we know from science, the science is exceedingly clear that from the moment of fertilization, a distinct living and whole human being comes into existence. Again, let's go back to our basic science classes. Um, Any of us who are medical professionals 
learned about the law of biogenesis. What does that say? It says that two human beings can only produce another human being. Uh, when I gave the talk recently in Tanzania, I said this and it got some laughs, but it's true. Two human beings can't create a cat. They can't create a dog. They can only create another human being. And so we know that when that new organism comes into existence, one, it's a human organism. But, you know, some people might say, yes, but it's, you know, a single cell zygote. It can't possibly be a human being. Um, again, we know that it's of the, the species Homo sapien because that being came from two other human beings. But also the science is very clear that from the very moment of fertilization, even that single cell zygote meets all the scientific criteria, not only for a living being, but for an organism, meaning that that thing, that being is made up of multiple organ systems that are working in coordination to support the function of the whole. You know, one thing that I think is really amazing is that at the moment moment of fertilization, when the membranes of the sperm and the egg fuse, at that exact moment, that single cell zygote comes into existence and immediately begins to act in a way that protects the new organism. It changes the composition of the zona pellucida, which is that that zone, that membrane around um, the egg that now has become a single cell zygote in order to prevent penetration of any other sperm. So immediately it jumps into the self-protection mode and that begins, you know, roughly nine months of self-directed development of that human being. And I think another important point to make here, just because this is one of my pet peeves, is that it's important to point out that if we're going to be scientifically accurate, there is no such thing as a fertilized egg. At the moment of sperm egg fusion, you have a new single-celled zygote, human zygote. The sperm ceases to exist. The egg ceases to exist. You have a unique individual organism that has never existed in all of human history that has a unique DNA complement, unique from his or her mother, unique from his or her father. And from there, development continues. And it doesn't just continue until birth. It continues really through the rest of our lives, but certainly uh, well after we are born, our, our development continues. And those are all extremely important points. Uh, but what if somebody says, you know, sure, uh, I know that the preborn is an integrated human being. I paid attention in biology class, but uh, does that necessarily mean that they're human persons? You know, they can't really think like us. They can't really feel like us. Uh, so what makes you say that they have the same moral value as, uh, say, the, the grown woman that's gestating them? Yeah. Well, this is really, you're right, Miriam. This is really sort of where the conversation has moved because I think even uh, abortion advocates, if they're being honest, will acknowledge that there really is no doubt on the science anymore, uh, that at the moment of fertilization, a new human being comes into existence. So they'll say exactly what you said. Yes, they're a human being, but they're not a person and only persons have rights. Um, I have a couple responses to that. First of all, I have yet to hear a unified consensus on what actually then constitutes a person. If we are not persons simply by the, the fact that we are human beings, then what is it that makes us a person? So some people will say, well, it's when you're born. Okay, but that that happens at at different parts of, of uh, our development. So some people are born at 24 weeks, some people are born at 28 weeks, at 36 weeks. So that's a moving target. Also, for people who say that you're a person when you're born, I have yet to hear an explanation of what is so magical about the birth canal that it suddenly turns a non-person into a person. I mean, I think that's kind of a ridiculous argument, honestly. Um, 
but you know, if somebody can give me some some evidence of of how that turns you into a person, I'm I'm willing to listen to that. Um, other people have said, well, the ability to have conscious thought—that's what makes us persons. Um, and you know, I could see that maybe as an argument, but again, the problem is how does that determine personhood? Because we all have varying ability to abilities to have conscious thought throughout our lives. So if I get put under anesthesia to have surgery, I don't have the ability under anesthesia, at least to our knowledge, to have conscious thought and to uh, put into place actions to accomplish whatever it is that I'm thinking about, which is an argument that Peter Sanger, a pretty well-known bioethicist, has used, is that that's the definition of personhood. Um, so I don't have that ability when, when I'm under anesthesia. Does that mean all of a sudden that I'm no longer a person? And does that mean that someone would have the right then to end my life if I was somehow inconvenient for them? I mean, I think anybody listening to this and certainly anyone that I talk to would say, well, no, of course not. Why? Well, because you're a person, you know, you have rights, you have the right not to be killed. And that is exactly the same argument we can use for preborn children. But, you know, one one pushback on that that I've heard people say is, yes, but when you're under anesthesia, you have the capacity to have conscious thought. Um, because as soon as you are awoken from anesthesia, you're going to be having conscious thought again. Well, preborn children also have the capacity to have conscious thought. First of all, we don't know that they don't have conscious thought when they're when they're in utero. But even if they don't, we know simply based on the fact that they are human beings, they have the capacity to one day have conscious thought. Um, and so and so that can't possibly be an argument. And, you know, that's just one example. There are many things that that people will say, well, this constitutes a person. But again, there's no universal agreement. And if we are going to base basic human rights, like the right to not be killed without proper justification on what makes you a person, then we better have pretty uniform agreement on what constitutes people. The final point that I'll make on that is that, you know, I think throughout history, we can see instances where groups of people, while acknowledging that they are human beings, have been denied personhood and not treated as people. And there has never been a time throughout all of human history when denying personhood to a group of human beings has turned out well. It has always led to massive human rights abuses. And if we truly believe that there is something called human equality, then we have to base that equality on something that we all share in equal amounts. And the only thing that we all share in equal amounts is our human nature. And so when does that human nature come into existence? Well, it comes into existence the moment we come into existence, which is the moment of fertilization. And so really this view of this view of the value of human beings, the, the endowment view that we were endowed with worth and value simply um, because we're human beings when we came into existence, it's really the only view of human worth and value that gives us true human equality and is inclusive of everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. And the slogan that I like to throw out sometimes when arguing why all human beings deserve human rights is that, you know, human rights are for humans, full stop. You know, not humans with a certain level of conscious ability or not humans with a certain level of development. And, you know, when we start adding requirements for personhood and when we start gerrymandering people out of the definition of personhood, that's exactly the kind of logic that leads to the kind of atrocities that you're talking about. So yeah, that's that's all really important to think about. Uh, so sticking to that first point in your syllogism, we might find those who disagree that abortion constitutes the intentional killing of the preborn human beings. So let's dive a little bit into that. Uh, why would you say abortion is intentional killing? 
Yeah, well, so, you know, I think there's been some confusion around this lately uh, since the Dobbs decision, really, because people are conflating things with abortion that really aren't. So, you know, while the medical definition of the word abortion might mean the ending of pregnancy prior to 20 weeks, when we're talking about it on a public level, I think most people understand what we're talking about when we say the word abortion. And that is a, a procedure or a medication that's given to end a pregnancy. Well, what does that mean? You know, that's kind of a euphemistic term. I'm just going to end a pregnancy. What does that mean? Well, again, let's look at what we're really talking about. What are we talking about when we're talking about a woman being pregnant? She's pregnant with another human being, a living human being. And the intent then of an induced abortion is really feticide or embryocide if it's, you know, in the embryonic stage. Um, and this is, again, this is well understood by really anyone within the medical community who's being honest with themselves. Um, you know, it's why we call it a failed abortion when the baby survives. And um, also the Royal College of OBGYNs, the, the British professional medical organization for OBGYNs actually says in one of their documents that the intent of an abortion is to produce a dead fetus and that the process of the abortion should accomplish that. And so when we're talking about abortion, when states are considering their abortion uh, regulations, what we're talking about are procedures or drugs that are given with the intent of ending the life of a living embryonic or fetal human being. So um, so this is very clearly what an abortion does, what its intent is to accomplish is ending the life of that preborn child. So, you know, I think when we're, again, when we're debating this or talking about whether this should be a part of healthcare, we need to at least be honest. All of us should be honest about what it is that we're talking about. Then we can debate whether or not it's okay or whether or not it's a part of healthcare. But we really all need to be on the same starting point, that that is the sole intent of an abortion. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about instances, I know we'll get into this later, but we're not talking about instances where we're separating mom and baby in order to save mom's life that, you know, are not done with the intent of ending that, that preborn child's life. When we're talking about abortion, we're talking about the intentional ending of that preborn child's life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and some of us might have gotten a little bit in the weeds post-Dobbs uh, in the argument over what an abortion really is. Uh, you guys might have heard some people argue that the definition of abortion is really just a medical procedure that ends a pregnancy. Uh, but that definition doesn't really account for uh, things like C-sections and like elective uh, inductions of labor, uh, the purpose of which are to produce a live birth. Uh, you'll, if you look at ACOG's website, you'll you'll see that they do also define abortion as a, a, a medical procedure to end a pregnancy, such that it does not result in a live birth, and that really proves what the the intent there is. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, some might characterize abortion as simply a woman declining to let another person, that is the the preborn, uh, use her body. Uh, what's wrong with that line of thinking? Well, first of all, it, you know. Again, the the purpose of an abortion is that you produce a, a dead baby, and so it's not simply uh, declining uh, someone you know coming in and using your body. First of all, the human being is already there. So once you have another human being in place, then we have all kinds of societal restrictions on on what we can and can't do to other human beings. This is not uh, this is not exclusive to the condition of pregnancy. So. Um, you know, and it's not something outside of the situation of a rape situation when a woman becomes pregnant as a result of a sexual assault. 
that woman made a a decision to engage in an activity that has the known consequence of resulting in a pregnancy. Um, you know, regardless of if she used birth control to try and avoid a pregnancy or not, anytime any human being engages in sexual activity, they know that there is the possibility that a pregnancy could result. And when pregnancy results, again, then you have another human being there. So, you know, I often tell people, Let's think about this in the scenario of after a baby is born. So, you know, after a baby's born, you know, Miriam, you have you have a, a young child, so you can speak to this uh, as well. Uh, after a baby's born, they also put a lot of demands on you, you know, physical demands, time demands, mental demands, things like that. So they are really just as much using your body or using your resources after they're born as they do before they're born. And yet, you know, you would immediately be put into jail if you killed your son right now, um, because we recognize that we should not be harming innocent human beings, especially human beings that are dependent upon us. And certainly our society recognizes that parents have a very unique responsibility to their children. Um, you know, if I were to see a child on the side of the road, abandoned and not being taken care of, and I continued walking and did nothing. I mean, you might think I'm an awful person, and, and I would agree with you on that, but I would not be legally responsible to have provided care to that child. However, that child's parents would be held legally responsible because we recognize as a society that parents have a special and unique responsibility to their children. It's why we hold, um, you know, fathers who have abandoned their children responsible for providing financial compensation. It's the same reason. So we recognize that parents, even if it means that they're inconvenienced, they have a unique responsibility to their children. It's one thing if that child has never been in existence. It's another thing once they have come into existence. And again, that happens at the moment of fertilization. Thank you so much, Dr. Francis. This has been a great conversation so far uh, with useful foundational information. So I'm looking forward to picking this up in part two, uh, where we will discuss some of the common pro-abortion arguments and explore how medical professionals can use pro-life apologetics in their day-to-day. -day. Thank you so much. Thank you. And a massive thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you have any topic requests, you can direct message us on the social media pages linked in the description of this episode. You can also email us at info at aaplog.org. And if you're a medical professional interested in joining this community as a member, you can do so by going to aaplog.org slash join. We will see you next week.